Hello, and welcome to Maryland Chatters. I'm your host, Danielle Gaines. Brandon Scott is a son of Baltimore. Born and raised in Park Heights, Scott says he was drawn to run for public office in the city when he was a child, watching the world descend on his neighborhood for a horse race once a year, when every other day of the year he and his friends and family struggled for basic needs, like heat and air conditioning in their schools. That changes you, Scott said. And now, Scott, Baltimore's youngest mayor in more than a century, will helm a city in the midst of great change. Former Mayor Catherine Pugh left City Hall in scandal a year and a half ago. In the wake, the City Council and Scott proposed a series of governmental reforms, all of which were overwhelmingly approved by voters at the polls. Maryland Matters' Bennett LaCrone caught up with Scott about his win and his plans for governing earlier this week. We also check in with Maryland Matters editor Josh Kurtz about other news of the week, including Republican attitudes on the presidential race, what the 2021 General Assembly session might look like, the loss of another top public health official in state government, and, on a lighter note this Friday the 13th, a tally of the fate of so-called unlucky bill numbers. First, let's listen in on Bennett's conversation with Brandon Scott. You'll have to forgive some spotty stretches of audio. The mayor-elect is a busy man, and he caught up with us while on the move. Most of his conversation with Bennett follows, though we did lose some of our interview to the sounds of the city. Mayor-elect Scott, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I wanted to first talk about your victory in Baltimore's mayoral election and get a sense of what that means to you. When you were growing up in Park Heights, did you ever imagine that you would become mayor? I imagined it a lot as a, as a kid, but it's still uh, the most humbling uh, thing that I've ever, ever, the humbling feeling I've ever felt. I am eternally grateful uh, to the citizens of Baltimore for their, their, the trust that they uh, build in me. We're still so excited about the, the, the uh, coalition that we built and really uh, the folks who are excited about the promise of the city and how we can work together to make Baltimore the best version of itself. After your victory in the June primary, you said that serving Baltimore is the only thing I've ever wanted to do with my life. So how and when did you first become interested in politics and city affairs? It was about growing up, and I can actually tell you the story. Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up in Park Heights, and you grew up in a neighborhood where the world descends on it for a horse race, but then every other day of the year, you're not even recognized as human by your own city government. It changes you. When you see your first shooting before your 10th birthday and you go to schools with no heat and air living next to vacant uh, property, you have to make a decision of whether life is, is going to be the way that has been predetermined for you or you can do something to change that predetermination. And I remember just, I would always just uh, pester my, my parents, my aunts and uncles, my grandparents about how are the things that were happening to so many people in our community. Uh, we're going to be prevented from happening to us. And they uh, and they uh, clearly uh, stated to me, my mom stated one day, that if I wanted it to change, that I was going to have to do it myself because no one was coming to save. So as city council president, you championed some of the charter <laughs> were on the ballot on November 3rd, including adopting a city administrator position. What are your thoughts on voters overwhelmingly approving of those amendments? Well, voters voted for change, right? Uh, they voted for change by voting for a son of Baltimore, making sure uh, that that the city was going to be operating in a 
though they voted for change because they know, uh, like I've been saying, that this election shouldn't just be about plugging uh, great people into a continuing uh, outdated broken structure, but actually making sure that we are re- or changing that structure and making it better. And that's really what the voters vote for. They want their government to in a professional manner. That's why they ask for the city administrator. They want to have more accountability. They want to have more balance. And that's what they voted for. And I'm, I'm looking forward to being a person that has to, as the next mayor of the city, I see that go into fruition. So what's your first month in office going to look like? What are your first priorities once you're sworn in? Well, when you think when you think about that, there's no time off, right? Uh, we know uh, what we have to do in the city and how we're going to get there. But when you think about uh, that that first month, we're talking about building out a team, uh, making sure that we are filling uh, not just the city administrator role. You have to think about uh, what's going on in the city as far as not having a DPW director, not having a housing commission, not having an equity and civil rights director. So making sure that we are building that framework of a team to build a better Baltimore, making sure that we're immediately uh, making our agencies uh, convene and, and, and produce a comprehensive strategy for dealing with gun violence in Baltimore, our police department, our health commission, our health department, every single agency, but also starting that process of how we're going to be able to have the best uh, structure and the best team moving forward. Mm-hmm. How are you going to address population loss in Baltimore? How do you bring people back or keep them from leaving? Well, I think we, we know what we have to do. First and foremost, if you want people to stay in Baltimore City, you have to not just talk about the issues that citizens face and uh, or have issues with in the city each and every day. You actually have to start to address them. So when you're addressing uh, crime and violent crime in a complete and comprehensive way in the city, where you're making sure uh, through of the new structure or having administrators, having top quality talent from top to bottom in every agency and, and making sure that those agencies are meeting needs of citizens, that people are, are now getting their trash and recycling picked up, that people who are bringing and want to operate businesses in the city are not having to go through hoops and having to talk to five and six different people to get permits and that those things are being done in efficient and effective. That people are getting their recycling, that we solve the water bill issue once and for all so that people are getting uh, one-time accurate water bills that they can trust in the city, or that we're improving education in the city, or that we're dealing with COVID-19 and making sure that we're keeping people healthy and safe. That's how you start to bring people back. People want to be in the city. There are people moving into the city every day. But when you talk about keeping people, you have to restore uh, the belief that city government will operate always in the best interest of our citizens, always trying to help our citizens, and always uh, in the most efficient and effective way when you talk about taxpayer dollars. You've said that gun violence needs to be treated as a public health issue. How will your approach to crime be different from previous administrations? Well, first and foremost, our our approach will be different because we will not uh, place the brunt of of a disease on one agency. Uh, It will not just be the police department Police commission's responsibility. We will actually, and we will actually mandate by every agency to be a part of a coordinated approach. Uh, I actually passed a law uh, that's going to go into effect very, very shortly into my term that we have to, it's not going to be optional for Baltimore, that we have to 
will finally, once and for all, fully implement this bond protection that includes focusing in on the small groups of people in the overwhelming majority of the population of Baltimore, but also uh, simultaneously that they provide opportunities for those people to change, to change their life. And we also will, for the first time, have a focus on uh, the global leadership sort of a multi-agency thing and responsibility in Baltimore. What are your thoughts on calls to defund the police? Well, listen, it, this, is, this is an issue that, that, that has been around for a long time. But I think that folks have to understand that it's not, to me, we're talking about a process, and we in Baltimore have been talking about a process of reimagining what public safety looks like before uh, the murder of school or the hashtag. Folks are listening and they have seen of a strong city documentary uh, that PBS did. Uh, they connected here, me say, in 2016 or 17, that we require too much of our folks. And why are we uh, putting things on them that they shouldn't be handling? That's what it means to me, right? For example, we're here in Baltimore City, a place that has John Hopkins, a place that has University of Maryland, Maryland Medical System. We have the best health and mental health institutions in the country, in the world here. Why are we requiring our police officers to be uh, the first uh, responders or overbearing them with responding to behavioral health and substance abuse issues? They should not. It's actually in our consent decree that we have to start to understand how uh, they, we can reduce their responsibility on those types of call values. That's what, for me, when folks say defund, I automatically go to reimagine because we have to have people who are trained to do what they're trained to do handling those issues. Our police officers are not mental and behavioral health clinicians. They should not be uh, the first and the folks that are responding to each and every one of these things. The same thing goes for substance abuse. We have to put uh, triangles on triangles and circles in circles, and we haven't been doing that. And we have to make sure that we do that responsibly over time so that uh, as we are uh, uh, adjusting, uh, of the services and the money that we're doing in a way that doesn't run afoul of our consent decree, that keeps and understands that we are a city uh, that has a violence issue that our police are always going to play a significant role in, and that we simultaneously have to reimagine what public safety is and reduce their responsibility so that we can properly uh, spend city taxpayer dollars where they should go to help us be a complete and whole city. How often do you anticipate being in Annapolis as mayor? You know, how do you highlight Baltimore's needs in state government? Well, I'm going to be there. I've been in Annapolis consistently as a council person, uh, council person mainly for public safety and education issues. 
We are going to be there. I always look forward to partnering with the General Assembly. We're going to look to bring in some sort of, of, of belief and hope and trust back into uh, the leadership in the mayor's office in Baltimore City to Annapolis by partnering with our folks around the region and across the state, building on a relationship that I've made over the years and helping people to understand that there's a new day in Baltimore where Baltimore wants to once again be a beacon of light for Baltimore, I mean for the state of Maryland. And you have a good relationship and partnership with Senator Cory McRae, Senator Antonio Hayes, Senate President Bill Ferguson. Who are your go-to people in the city's House delegation? Well, listen, I have a great relationship with many folks. I have a great relationship with our House delegation chair, uh, who I actually, she's my personal delegate. I was a personal council person. I have a great working relationship and always had uh, with uh, Chair, Chairwoman McIntosh. Uh, there are uh, Delegate Learman. There are many folks in our House delegation that I have uh, Delegate Wells have a great relationship with and want to keep expanding that relationship. A Delegate Branch, who is also uh, my personal delegate. We, I have always had a great working relationship. Our delegations with folks from across the state and other delegations, and we're looking forward to uh, building upon those relationships to help Baltimore communicate and navigate through Annapolis. What's your relationship like with Governor Hogan? I've had, always had a relationship with Governor Hogan. Uh, we've mainly worked together on, and worked with each other uh, on public safety things. He and I are going to be meeting very soon. We will, I will always be able to willing and talk and communicate and work with anyone that wants to actually help Baltimore City. But the same way I hold my, my personal friends accountable, be it uh, Senator McCray or anyone else, I'm going to hold the governor accountable as well. When people are right, I'll say they're right. When they're wrong, I'll say they're wrong. Party does not matter. But in that, in that, it's about doing what's right for my city and standing up for my city. Will you look to revive the conversation about the red line? What, what I will say to that is this. I will look to revive the conversation that we actually need 21st century transportation in Baltimore City, be it the red line, be it uh, some other uh, uh, sense of how we're going to actually have a real public transportation system uh, and the firm belief that we need to make sure that we're fighting for uh, mandated funding for, for NTA and making sure that those dollars stay with NTA. Uh, that we also need to work towards having a regional, it be a regional transportation uh, agency, uh, much like we see in Philadelphia and D.C. and San Francisco and Oakland. Uh, we know that Baltimore needs to be uh, modernized when it comes to our public transportation. Uh, we know the red line is it was a once in a lifetime missed opportunity that we absolutely should not have to do without. But as we move forward, be it uh, doing the red line. Again, or something else, we will fight for 21st century transportation in our city. How well do you know the other executives from some of Maryland's largest jurisdictions, like Prince George's, Montgomery, and how closely do you plan to work with them? Very closely. I've known a Prince George's County exec uh, uh, for, for a few years now since she was uh, the, the state attorney for Prince George's County. I've spoken with her after the election. I have a, a great relationship with County Executive Oshesky and, and County Executive Ball, who I've been friends with for years. I've been I've grown to know and actually grown to, to love County Executive Fitness in Anne Arundel County. And I look forward to working with all of them, especially those in the region and the County Executive from Montgomery County as well, to make sure that we are working together to progress in our region and our state. Mm -hmm. Are you at all concerned about the next round of redistricting diminishing the city's power in Annapolis? 
of course, it's a concern, but we, we have to make sure that we uh, try to fight for our representation and, and keep uh, the city uh, in the place where it is today. And we we have a lot of work to do ourselves to make sure that, that we are starting to uh, uh, come back on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. What is the root cause of crime in Baltimore, by your view, and how do you think the city needs to address that? There is no one root cause. Let me be very clear about that. If anyone thinks that there's one cause of violence in Baltimore, but they are so far off the mark that they're not even in legality. There are multiple causes of violence in Baltimore. Uh, it can be as simple as a small dispute. It can be uh, trauma. It can be uh, instances from uh, folks' past. Uh, we know that economic opportunity and lack thereof, educational opportunity and lack thereof, the ability to deal with uh, one's uh, uh, issues, substance abuse, there are a myriad of issues that are, uh, lead to violence in Baltimore City. And that's why you continuously hear me say that we have to attack this issue in a complete and comprehensive manner. And that's all the questions that I had. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Uh, only that this. That this, uh, I'm excited, and but am not, and not by any means coming into this with rose-colored glasses. I know that there's a Herculean task in front of me, but each and every day I work uh, extremely hard to make Baltimore a better place. All right, Mayor Alex Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Josh, it's good to hear from you. Well, it's good to be back. So ballots are still being counted throughout Maryland, but the election results are effectively decided. What races stuck out to you? Well, more than anything, what stuck out to me was how predictable most of the races were when all was said and done, and how quiet it was electorally in Maryland compared to a lot of the rest of the country. You know, we've had, we have this, uh, it's been a, just a contentious presidential election, a contentious national election, tough, hard-fought races all over the country, some of which haven't been resolved yet, some of which aren't resolved in the minds of certain folks, even if they've been called. And here it was just kind of another ho-hum election, incumbents, waltzed in by and large. Um, obviously, we have some political change in Baltimore, which is significant and, and worth talking about as, as we are doing on this podcast. But, um, you know, the Maryland political scene is just sort of relatively quiet right now, though I think that's going to change in 2022. There were a couple of insurgent candidates in the city of Baltimore. Um, yeah. I'm thinking about Bob Wallace for mayor. And right. Franco Miller pause um, in the District 12 council seat. Yeah. Did those races turn out the way that you thought that they would? I think so. I mean, I think they both ran interesting and good races by and large, and uh, and particularly uh, Franco Miller pause kind of came out of nowhere, got a lot of support, raised a lot of money, and running as a Green Party candidate, got somewhere in the neighborhood of 35% of the vote. But, um, and Bob Wallace, you know, was a, was, became a serious part of the conversation, even though I'm sure his electoral showing isn't anywhere near where he would have wanted it to be. Um, 
he really he, he got a foothold among older black voters in particular and had something to say and you know earned a right to kind of stick around and be a voice on city affairs if he wants to be but what both races ultimately showed Wallace of course was running as an independent what both races ultimately showed is that just a lot of voters are predisposed to automatically vote democratic without really even thinking very much and that certainly benefited councilman stokes in the 12th district and you know contributed to to Brandon scott's big victory in the mayoral race and the state of maryland obviously overwhelmingly voted in favor of joe biden for president and some of our key leaders here have recognized that he is the president-elect. But right. we did some reporting this week on attitudes of Republican Marylanders. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because for a while now, it seems like there's been a divide among Maryland Republicans. You have kind of the Hogan Republicans, and then you have everybody else. Um, uh Governor Hogan was very quick to uh, offer congratulations to to Joe Biden, uh, you know, within really not very many minutes after the networks called Biden the winner in the presidential election. Um, Hogan was out um, with congratulations. And in the in the in the days since then, he's been critical of, of President Trump for not um, not conceding. Um Pretty quickly, Lieutenant Governor Boyd Rutherford, at least on social media, put out congratulations to uh, to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. He mentioned, incidentally, that he's a fellow uh, Howard University grad with uh, Vice President-elect Harris. And he mentioned that he went to USC Law School in California, as um, uh, Senator Harris's husband did. So he tried to make those connections. But most of the rest of the Republicans, you know, certainly elected officials in the state, have yet to sort of acknowledge that uh, Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. Either they've kept silent, or they've said, let's wait till all the ballots are counted, or they've shed some doubt on uh, the veracity of some of the counts in uh, swing states. So it's a real interesting divide. Mm-hmm. And do you think this gets resolved? at any time in the near future? Uh, it's really hard to say when, um, you know, and this is, we're, we're all in uncharted territory um, because certainly I can't remember a major race like this where the loser hasn't in some form, if not congratulated, at least acknowledged the victor. But, you know, there's a process in the presidential race there. States have to certify their results. That'll be happening over the course of the next couple of weeks. The Electoral College meets in mid-December. Congress gets together to ratify the Electoral College vote in early January. And then there's an inauguration on January 20th. I mean, eventually, um, President Trump is going to have to, you know, walk out of the White House and not be president anymore. I don't know what it's going to look like between now and then, but uh, I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. Yeah. Well, that could make for uh, a very busy mid-January for us. <laughs> I know, right? And that, you know, right when the when the general assembly session starts too. So. Exactly. So yeah, we got yeah. the first peek of how the 2021 session might look this week. And We did. Um, 
tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's certainly going to be a session like no other. And um, it looks like all hearings in both the House and Senate are going to remain virtual for the entire three-month session. Um, uh, House members and senators will come in and do floor sessions, but they will be there won't be very many, at least in the early part of the 90-day session. Um, they'll certainly come in on the first day on January 13th, but how many more times after that for a while? They probably won't be there very much. And basically, there's going to be almost no public access to the state house or legislative buildings because of COVID. There will be um, plexiglass uh, shields around senators' desks. Probably uh, half the house may be meeting outside of their regular chamber. It, it's just going to be different, um, and it's really going to change the way a lot of people are used to doing business, whether it's the lawmakers themselves, or lobbyists and advocates, or or, or even reporters. And you know, even though there's we've kind of had some of the rules and and restrictions laid out to us we still don't know exactly what it's going to look like and my guess is everybody's paying praying for uh, unseasonably warm weather so you know you can meet someone on a park bench or something like that because uh, it's going to be a lot harder to see anybody otherwise mm -hmm. and you talked specifically to lobbyists and advocates um, yeah what was their reaction well the, the almost universal, there, there were two universal reactions. One was, we're building our Rolodexes as fast as we can. And the, and the most valuable commodity is a lawmaker's cell phone number. So Which, which any lawmakers listening to this should feel free to share right. their ours with, with us. us. Us at Maryland Matters, yeah. Never mind anybody else. <laughs> and and then the other, the other, the other thing is, you know, everybody's kind of sad just because a lot of intel gathering for for lobbyists for advocates and for reporters too is just kind of wandering around the state house lobby the legislative buildings and just talking to people and that element of the session is going to be gone and it's it'll change the way people gather intel but you know there's sort of a camaraderie and a sociability that's going to get lost too and that's too bad um i think for for advocacy groups you know like unions or, uh, you know, certain other advocacy groups that traditionally come down, bring crowds, hold rallies, pack committee rooms. Um, you know, outdoor rallies will still be permitted, but I wonder how many of them there will be. And, you know, you're not going to be bringing down a busload of people to pack a committee room anymore. And that's going to be sad, too. The flip side is um, sometimes it's hard for people to come to Annapolis and lobby or testify and now if you don't have to make the trip and take half a day off of work and stuff like that but can just carve out a few minutes to testify electronically it'll be easier so in a certain way um there might be more access than there usually is you know electronic access at any rate mm -hmm. also on the covid related front this week uh we learned that maryland's health secretary bobby neal is retiring effective December 1st. Um, he's not the only high profile public health official to announce a departure during the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you fill us in? Yeah, well, I mean, his departure is big news and uh, 
a few months earlier in uh, late July, the, the state's public health chief, uh, Fran Phillips, announced that she was retiring also. Both Phillips and, and Neil are just veteran, um, you know, state and local government technicians, and they've both been around for a long time. Um, and they both were integral parts of the state's uh, campaign against um, uh, COVID-19. So Governor Hogan and his administration are going to have to proceed without them um, at a time when cases are once again spiking. And we're seeing both state government impose uh, newer restrictions. Uh, local governments are clamping down. Um, and so things are kind of rapidly changing again. And uh, two of the people who are on the front lines every day uh, uh, won't, won't be with us. Well, Fran Phillips is already gone, and and uh, Bobby Neal won't be uh, won't be here much longer either. And Neal is, you know, apart from his government skills, I mean, he's kind of a he's kind of a zealot like legendary figure in Maryland who has held like more jobs than anyone can even uh, imagine, both as an elected official and uh, in appointed office as an advisor. I mean, he's just kind of done it all. It's kind of amazing. All right. So on a final lighter note, <laughs> this episode is going to be released on Friday the 13th. Yes. And the deadline for pre-filing bills is later this month. Right. So I did some sleuthing when it comes to, quote unquote, unlucky bill numbers in Annapolis. So yeah. um, your HB and SB 13s your 1313s and your 666s. Yeah. So Josh, uh what do you think is the luckiest of the unlucky bill numbers? Um it's, you know, it's hard to guess. I I I'll just have to throw in my obligatory pop culture reference and say that whenever I think of 1313, I think of the old TV show The Munsters because they lived at thirteen thirteen Mockingbird Lane. But, um, <laughs> beyond that, I I I, I wouldn't hazard a guess, and I, something tells me you're gonna you're gonna have the answer. <laughs> oh wow, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so just for fun, um, yeah, Senate Bill six sixty six is the most successful. Um, wow, it has passed four times in the past ten years in. Mm. 2017, 2015, 2014, and 2012. Okay. The second most lucky of the unlucky numbers was actually HB 666, which passed in three oh. years. So so the devil is doing his work. I guess so, <laughs> yeah. And then um, for a quick breakdown of the other numbers that I mentioned, um, for all the talk of of bill volume, there is at least some restraint because the Senate never got to thirteen thirteen in any. Never got years. that high. Yeah. yeah, and in one year, twenty fifteen, the House also didn't get there. Um, HB thirteen thirteen has passed once in the past decade. Okay. HB thirteen and SB thirteen have each passed twice. And were any of these sort of, you know, bills of major significance or uh, uh, did they just sort of randomly happen? They 
just randomly happen. And so, yeah. um, you know, what I really would love to see someday is the lawmakers face when they get their bill back from drafting and it's, you know, 13 or 666 or yeah. any other number that could be uh, considered unlucky in different cultures. But I would think a four of 10 chance of passing is not bad. Probably a lot of lawmakers would take those odds. I would say so. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if we're going to get to 13-13 in either chamber this year, because one of the things uh, they're talking about, uh, the legislative leaders are talking about, as you know, we look ahead to COVID restrictions, is limiting the number of bills that members can introduce. So we may fall well short of 13-13 in both chambers. Yeah. And what I was going to say is we'll find out at least some of this uh, really soon because the pre-filed bill deadline is coming up before Thanksgiving. Right. Something else to look forward to besides the holiday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the holiday that a lot of us won't be celebrating. That's right. Yeah. Well, we well, can we can we can kind of, we can console ourselves with looking over pre-filed bills. Exactly. Uh, well, thank you, Josh. I appreciate your time and insight as always. Thank you, Danielle. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening to this Maryland Chatters podcast. Today's show was produced by myself, Danielle Gaines, and the Maryland Matters staff. You can read more of our nonprofit, nonpartisan journalism at MarylandMatters.org. And don't forget to sign up for our daily newsletter. Thanks again for joining us for some chatter that matters.